0: Hello, and welcome back to the weekly rondo. I am your host, as usual, Nick Morales. And joining me today is my glorious co-host Nipun Chopra. Nipun, how are you doing today?
1: Glorious. Uh, there's no insult after that. I'm not used to this kind of thing. All <laughs> the all the pods I do, I get insulted. So I can't I can't handle the standalone compliment, Nico.
0: I mean, I think you should be insulted, but I wanted to start <laughs> off start off good. We do have a lot to cover today, so wanted to I start off on, on a good note, and then maybe
1: we'll. We'll descend we'll from there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate that being on. It's always a pleasure talking footy with you.
0: No, it really is. I really it's you, Lawrence McKenna, Boo. Kristen Hennage, Dave. Yeah. Dave is
1: great. Dave's awesome.
0: And probably Kartik. Probably my top yeah. five.
1: Top five. These, right are all, these are all people I love too, so the, except for Lawrence. So it's it's a pretty good list. <laughs> it's a good list. It's a good
0: list. And it it's always good to talk footy with them. Um, so today we're going to be talking about a variety of things. We're going to do a little midsummer
1: transfer Night's window. Dream.
0: Like, <laughs> I was actually a stagecraft in high school, and we did that play. Um, huh. so what?
1: What? Well, you said you were stagecraft. I yeah. played. Uh, I played puck when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah. Wow. You probably sucked, but the puck was the best, dude. I, I was the best puck because I'm very, I'm very devilish. Are you? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, Manchester
0: United, Red Devils, everything's everything's There you go, like, you caught it. Look like at what you we're doing it. here. Um, but yeah, before before we really got into it, I wanted to give a little. I, I I feel like shout out is disrespectful, but you know, talk about one player that I thought was fantastic. I even recommended him sort of for City. Not that I think would anyone would listen, but I thought was a good fit for City. That unfortunately has been diagnosed with testicular cancer. Yeray Alvarez, who I believe is an Athletic uh, Bilbao player, uh, who's been diagnosed with testicular cancer, and and we've seen some good things. The The Guardian reporting that the entire team shaved yeah, their heads. Yeah, all shaved their heads. Yeah, in this, They sports. showed
1: video of them in the dressing room. is is really really a touching video.
0: Yeah, and he's I mean he's not every anyone you know who gets who's diagnosed with with the with the with the disease, or if it can be called that, I don't, I don't know if I'm doing a disservice, but is it's a sad thing. But when these public figures are are um, you know diagnosed, they're given a little bit more more attention. But I think it's important, you know, to to uh, be there for these people and and show a little bit of solidarity in the in in a time that is is difficult for the player and everyone around him. So just wanted to give a little. Attention to that because he's a fantastic player, and I, I've never met him, but I'm assuming he's a good person as well. And we wish him the best with with his fight. Um, but you know, on on to, on to you know happier things. I, I think today, as I always am scrolling through Twitter, I saw I think the front three, the guys of the front three, were doing a podcast tonight, and show podcast. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm on, it's only good when I'm
1: on there. Um, I'll agree with that. <laughs> I'm going to start like a counter movement. I was thinking about the other day. You know how anytime anyone says Frontier, they say a great podcast. Yeah, and I, I'm going to start the counter movement where anyone says the Frontier was a shit podcast, so that that comes. You got counter, to
0: counteract the the uh, the intention there. I like it exactly. I, I like yeah. it, but um, I think you should
1: start doing it too, Nico. Uh, let's let's start I, I the can't, movement. That,
0: but that would be that would be like tarnishing Kicking something yourself, that I'm yeah. a part of. So maybe I'll, true. M- mine would be longer. It'd be like front three great podcast only when I'm on it but that's like that's like too long for to get into people's heads but yeah that's um, true but yeah so I always kind of scroll through their questions just just because it's good to get the the juices flowing you know interesting questions sometimes and I think I see this question so much and it is what signing does each team within the top six need to make in order mm-hmm. to win the league and you know Nipun I think we've known each other for we've known each other over the internet for quite a long time and i think you know over our podcast twitter interactions whatever my you know how i'll react to things within the the sphere of of soccer and i think with that knowledge You know that the sight of that very question is like really aggravating for someone like myself, not because (laughs) it's a dumb question, but it's it's a question that sort of describes the way in which the person who's asking it thinks about football. And I think subsequently the majority of people, the the way they think about football. And I I think it, it comes with this insinuation that there's this terrible idea out there that if a club can sign X player, this ethereal X player that it would solve all of their problems. Everything will be okay and they'll win the league or they'll achieve whatever they need to achieve or they wanted to achieve, whether it be last season's targets or, or the targets that they've always wanted their club to achieve. And I think that, that perception really bothers me because there's a massive ignorance towards you know literally a billion other things, a billion other factors that go into not just football but life. And I think that actually leads us quite well into our first topic or, or team of discussion, which is Manchester United. You know, they they recently, this is the second summer in a row that they're really making the biggest, probably the biggest signing of the summer with Romelu Lukaku yeah. going to, to Manchester United. So, because obviously last summer was Paul Pogba, and now they have probably one of the best strikers in, in Europe's top five leagues, although the, the jury is still out because Lukaku's numbers are a little bit shrouded. You know, he didn't do what so well at Chelsea and then he moved to Everton and people have been waiting for him to do something at, at I guess a bigger club but I mean it's interesting to see and the guys on the double pivot pod were talking about this earlier was that I think the number one complaint and I don't know if you hold this opinion but the number one complaint for Manchester United fans last season was that Ibrahimovic didn't finish all the chances that they thought he would and that he wasn't. He was a good player, but he wasn't an excellent player for you guys. And then, obviously, he he only had a one year stint because he had his contract canceled or whatever, or it run out. He didn't he didn't follow through the extension. And so, with Lukaku coming in, I think <coughs> excuse me, I think that plays into this this question that you know Manchester United fans have been looking for a, a striker. And though Ibrahimovic was fantastic, nobody's hiding his age. Nobody can hide that. Lukaku seems to be an adequate replacement. Not only that, but one that is about 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever it is, years younger than that. But at the same time, I think, I don't know if this is a bold statement or not, but I think that if the tactical approach is the same as it was last year, and Lukaku, along with, I think, Lindelof is the other signing that you guys have made this summer, is the only thing that comes in and the tactical approach is the same, then Manchester United end up in the same spot as they did last year. Do you think that's a correct assessment?
1: It's a it's a pretty good assessment. I, I don't think it's an absurd assessment. Um I think you might be falling prey to the same thing that you correctly accused a lot of people of, which was when you were talking about one signing fixes all. It's difficult to place where Manchester United finish up without putting in context that they live in a in a in an ecological niche of other teams doing all kinds of different things. So, if, let me put it this way: if all else is equal, if City falls away as uh, the way they did, if uh, Liverpool do you know are as inconsistent as they were, if Chelsea were as good as they were, if Arsenal were Arsenal-like, if Tottenham were as good as they were, yeah, United probably finishes up fifth or sixth. But I don't think that will be the case. I think there'll be a lot of changes, uh, you know, talking about Everton, there'll be a lot of changes in uh, teams up there, the signings they make. So it's difficult to determine where Man United will finish up based on the style of Lukaku himself. But your point is, I think the point you're actually trying to get at is stylistically, the way Manchester United will play will be very similar to the way they played with Ibrahimović at the helm. Is that what you were maybe trying to get at?
0: Sort of, and, and maybe I'll expand upon that because I think you're right in saying that without the considerations of the rest of the league, then yeah, I am making that rather reductionist assumption as to where Manchester United will finish. But I think, and this is sort of maybe a better set at the beginning of the podcast, because it really is a big... Influential factor in terms of not only the top six but the entire Premier League, which is that this is a defining moment for football, for global football, for world football, and specifically mm-hmm. the Premier League, in the sense that, and we'll talk about this more when Mauricio Pochettino and, and Tottenham comes around, but there is a greater sense of importance upon how consistently you're finishing, whether it be within the top four, or the top six to the club to the to the premier league clubs because obviously the premier league is the richest league in the world because that's the league that people watch the most and with the globalization of soccer that's something that specifically Manchester United were able to capitalize upon before right. anyone else in England did they understood how valuable and they benefited from how valuable it was to break into the asian markets first to break into Absolutely. the american markets be one of the primary guys there and break into a variety of cultural markets and be that first Premier League team because the more global marketing you gain, the more leeway you have in being bad for X amount of time and still making an enormous amount of money. And like I said, we'll talk about this more when Tottenham come around. But if you, or, yeah, Tottenham come around. But if you look at Real Madrid or or even Barcelona, for example. When, you, when the camera is panning around on those Champions League nights and the semifinals and the quarterfinals, or even the finals, considering how often they've been there, you, 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 it's so difficult to imagine that that stadium, Real Madrid Stadium, will ever be the home of a team that isn't competing for a Champions League, a league title, or some major trophy, because they've cemented their place at the top. And so with that consideration... We have to imagine that the, these clubs, the, the clubs around Manchester United know this. This is a crucial time for them to, to cement themselves in a global market and be at the top when people start paying attention, when everybody starts paying attention to the sport. So with that being said, the reason I say Manchester United may end up in the same place is because I think the complaint with Ibrahimovic was that he wasn't finishing as many chances as he should last season when in fact he was converting exceptionally well considering the way that the team created those chances. Every team around them is only going is really going to get better or stay the same. So by ac- adequately replacing Ibrahimović in a team that was overperforming because its offensive numbers were anemic with the way that the manager was approaching his attacking actions, I think it's safe to suggest that Manchester United will still possibly fall short in the league table within with regards to the, to the top four, considering you know that they've gotten rid of a huge part of their team and replaced it with with a similar one, but still, yeah. what was required of them was to change it up tactically, and that's I think that's the point I was trying to get at.
1: Yeah, it's a good point, and I'd say this like the to to kind of to kind of uh. Hone in on what you're saying. That the complaint with with United, at least from United supporters, wasn't that Ibrahimovic wasn't creating or putting away all his chances. That, that actually that's not fair. That that was one of the complaints that Ibrahimovic was tending to miss easier chances and taking you know doing great with with hard or low uh, xG chances. If, you know for the lack of a better phrase there. Mm-hmm. I'll say this. I think what you'll see, which will be different is that Ibrahimovic's lack of mobility and Ibrahimovic's inability to consistently bring other, other players into the game will be different with Lukaku. Lukaku is able to get on both wings. Lukaku is able to drop deeper. Lukaku is able to play through other players. And I think you will see a little bit more dynamism in the forward line than you did with Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic was a true target man. And, and, and you've talked about this, and many people have talked about this. Lukaku is a target man only because of his physical stature. He's not a real target man. His, you know, People have talked about his first touch and all this stuff. The truth of the matter, he's actually much better with, with the ball at his feet than he is the ball being played to his chest, or the ball being played to his head for a header, a knock-on, or anything of that sort. So you will see a slightly different uh, type of uh, f- forward play from United And let me put it this way, the last time I was on with you, with Dave, I said, and I said this on multiple podcasts, at that time we were all talking about how Griezmann would sign for United, and I kept saying, I do not see how Mourinho will get the best out of Griezmann, I cannot see him building a system that gets the best out of Griezmann. I think Lukaku, on the other hand, is a player that Mourinho will be able to get the best out of, and I'm pretty excited to see how he plays. I'm excited that United have signed him, and there are question marks on him, but he's 24 He's a very, very good player, and he's coming into a team that, based on the history of Mourinho, is going to be a a, a talented team, is a talented team, and, and will probably be one to watch for next season.
0: I think one of the most striking things for me... <clears throat> excuse me. I think one of the most striking things for me about Lukaku is I remember I was going to do a piece on him, but I just kind of gave up on it because I didn't have the data that I wanted. But I remember looking at like about 50... Fifty or sixty different passes received maps for Lukaku, um, with the the current season and the, the season past. And what I found was, is that the games that he failed to re- to score to either score or get shots on target were games where the opposition limited limited him to touches outside the box. But any game and this is any game and i'm not sure if this is true for the whole season but i think this is true up until about february so i think it's safe to assume it's it's true for about the whole season but any game that the opposition was unable to limit him to touches outside the box he often scored if not got a significant amount of shots on target and i think that's the most significant thing for manchester united fans is that The reason their attack was so anemic last year was because there wasn't really a a proper utilization of Mkhitaryan or a consistent one, for that matter. Right, And really, the majority of the attacking production came from the link-up between Paul Pogba and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And Ibrah, yep. Exactly. And so that relationship rekindled with two players that maybe understand each other a little bit better is something that I think Manchester United fans have the ability to get excited for. What I'm stressing and what I want to see, and maybe something that you can give me an answer for, is that I think the reason that Mourinho fell short and will continue to fall short is because every manager has shortcomings. Mourinho's shortcoming is his, his inability to devise complicated offensive strategies or at least take risks enough in his attacking actions to allow for complex attacking strategies realistically without the signing of Lukaku and let's say Ibrahimovic is healthy if he had taken more risks in his attacking actions I think in the same way that the shortcomings of Liverpool struggling for fourth are down in my opinion to Klopp Manchester United's inability to finish within the top four is purely down to Mourinho and his lack of ability to to um, spur the team on from an an attacking perspective i don't see that changing that much and the only caveat to that is that the only justification that i would imagine is that since he didn't want to take as many risks in his attacking actions now that he signed a few more players that maybe are more suited to the team now that he has one more year with these manchester united players he's a little bit more comfortable he will take more risks in his attack but what do you see him doing next year what do you see him doing that's different?
1: I think you'll see. This is this is going to be the arc of the year. He's going to start the season in an attacking sense. He's going to you're going to see attacking football from United at the start of the season. At some point in September, United's going to lose to a big club, and that's when Mourinho will go back to what he knows best and eke out one love, two love wins, and that will get us through Christmas. And then we'll be talking about how the season goes from there. So you're right. You're not going to see. Mourinho is not going to change his way now. I mean, it would be absurd to think that this guy who believes that his own tactical system is the only reason he has all the trophies and and maybe he maybe he's right. I mean, he probably is right about that. He's not going to change his ways to incorporate any of our, you know, opinions on that. Not Manchester United opin- uh, fan opinions, not uh, Sir Alex's opinions. It's going to be the Mourinho way, which is defense first. Holding midfielders first, Fellaini as a target man. I mean, you're not going to see anything really changing. I'm not expecting United to start playing, you know, an expansive three-five-two or something against against Manchester City. It's just not going to happen against with Mourinho at the helm. And your criticisms are valid, but at the end of the day, Manchester United, our fan base is as good and as bad as any, and as long as Manchester United is winning, 90% of the fans will be happy. There's only the 10% like me who are going to want to watch attacking football. And I, we are the the ones who matter less because we're not the ones yelling the most on social media. We're not top reds, quote unquote, who, you know, get uh, retweets from full-time devils and pretend that they were in the Hotel room when Pogba signed his contract. So you know we're not we're not the dominant voice in the narrative, and the dominant voice of the narrative only cares about winning. And as long as we're winning, the dominant voice of the narrative will counterfeit the data. Sorry, cou- uh, sorry, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, will align the data or realign the data to pretend that Mourinho is doing something innovative? You know, and that's that's pretty much every fan base, and Manchester United is no better or worse. So. You're not going to see more in your change. And to to expect that, like I did for a little while, is just absurd and foolhardy. So you finally admit that you're a foolish person. I'm glad we have gotten that. We've gotten that <laughs> I have there. never suggested otherwise. <laughs> that is why I have the PhD, just so that people believe that I'm intelligent.
0: And that's why it's in your in your Twitter bio. Exactly. That's um, why the
1: only reason it's my Twitter bio.
0: <laughs> now, another major event in Manchester United, um, you know, news is is Wayne Rooney has finally left the club. Mm. Uh, they were also having another interesting discussion on on another podcast about. Wayne Rooney uh, and his career and sort of the prolonging of that career. And I think it was juxtaposed next to Steven Gerrard, which is I think an adequate comparison in the sense that we saw Steven Gerrard move back or move to different roles because he developed a different skill set as opposed to his younger game where they said, okay, let's move you into a different position to accentuate the better qualities of your latter years. Whereas I think there's a sense of maybe Wayne Rooney just playing in a different position because he's Wayne Rooney. If there wasn't the name Wayne Rooney and you applied the same skills and whatever, and, and, you know, the exact same player, then maybe we wouldn't see him feature as much. Maybe we wouldn't talk about him as much. Do you feel like that's a reality? And how do you feel he'll fit into life at Everton? Because I honestly don't understand the justification for that, specifically and I'll get onto my theory as to why when we move on to Everton in a second, but I'd like to hear you know some words from you on, on Wayne Rooney and, and his, the latter stages of his career.
1: The latter stages of his career started under Sir Alex, believe it or not. So yeah. we're talking like in 2011, 2012, Sir Alex was trying, uh, this is the uh, the season when Van Persie was just banging goals for fun. Rooney, in order to get onto the pitch, had to start playing deeper. Uh, he had some injuries that season. To be fair, but he did do some. He did some good things in deeper roles. Uh, but truth of the matter is, there was a huge, huge misinterpretation of what he was doing at that time and subsequently in "quote unquote" the register role, which which is an absurd thing to suggest that Wayne Rooney could ever be a regista. But uh, <laughs> the idea, the, the reason it became something that people talked about, was because everyone was like, "Okay, Wayne's getting older. He has the." You know, he, he, he's going to need to continue to play. He has the work rate to be a central midfielder, which is true. He has the work rate to be a central midfielder. He has the long passing range to be a central midfielder, also true. He can hit a 70-yard pass on a dime, absolutely. What he doesn't have is the awareness. What he didn't have was the short game. He did not have the ability to uh, have a good first touch into space the way Shabby or Scholes or Carrick or, you know, Rattle off any number of names could do. And that's why the number six role was never suited for him. So it was almost, as you said, it was almost forcing him into playing that number six role because you needed Wayne Rooney on the pitch. Then somehow he survived uh, Sir Alex trying to sell him. Moyes came in, he signed another contract, had a good six months under Moyes actually playing as a forward. Then, yet again, towards the end of that season, once Van Persie was fit again, it started being dropper, dropped deeper, sucked balls. Following season, Louis Van Hall. Van Hall comes in, says Wayne Rooney is his captain. He's not thinking of selling him. Rooney has a f- two or three good se- two or three good months. Uh, everything falls apart. Wayne Rooney's garbage the rest of the season. Last season, uh, sorry, uh, previous season again. Van Hall's second season. Wayne Rooney has one maybe one or two good months. He has a couple of assists. Not in the number six role, kind of as an attacking midfielder. Last season, garbage. This season, he's gone to Everton. So mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is, Wayne Rooney's career arc, the end of it at Man United, started in 2010, 2011. and it hasn't been pretty to watch the decline. Uh, but at the, at the same, with the same token, you have to give the devil his due. He has, he's a, he will go down as a Manchester United legend. It's too close to a lot of people for a lot of people right now to give him that level of credit. But I've said it over and over again: he will be admired more once he's gone. And now that he's gone, people will maybe in one or two years start giving him the credit that he deserves because he is the the person has, who has more goals than anyone else at Manchester United. That is an incredible, incredible record when you put that fact out there. And. Uh, i I mean, I guess we can move to the Everton part of the conversation. Did you want to tell me what your thoughts are first on his move to Everton?
0: Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about Wayne Rooney because that's literally a waste of time for anyone <laughs> um, but uh I think you you summed it up quite well there is you know his his later the latter stages of his career were were not, not great to watch. And I think, like you said, there there's a there's a huge difference between having the ability to make a pass and then making that pass at the right time. And I think that was it for Wayne Rooney was that he had the the ability to send a ball 60 yards. But the difference between him and Tony Cruz is that Tony Cruz sends it at a time where it literally breaks the opposition's formation, whereas Wayne Rooney just sends it. You know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting one. But I'm sure I, I don't like. I said I don't want to talk too much about Wayne Rooney. I think there are factors within that, and I've heard Man- influential Manchester United fans argue whether he's a legend or not. I think Dave doesn't really consider him one. He came out with a weird quote today that said he hit it for years, but <laughs> um, he wore Everton pajamas when he was at the home Everton with his kids, pajamas. and and the the transfer whole dealings in, in the midst of when he was actually very relevant and very good kind of put a sour taste in the mouths of Manchester United fans, but we'll leave that debate for another day. I have a theory as to why Everton would accept it, and I think it's an interesting time for Everton, and and we're sort of bridging the gap to the Everton discussion, as Everton are also trying to bridge the gap to the top six, or the top four, I think... That's really what they're trying to do is that they're trying to cement themselves within that conversation for a long time. Because like I said, you get that global money, you get that consistent fan base, you get that group of people in the States, in South America, in China, in India that, will, that are actually Everton fans, that will buy Everton merchandise, that will start up Everton fan clubs, that will tune in at 7 a.m., 10 a.m., whatever time it is to watch Everton, and you have more money. That's just the way these things work. And you need more money to be a football club. You need money to be a good football club. That's the reality of the situation in the 21st century. And I think in a time where Everton need to look to the future and make shrewd signings, if they're even to pull off this bridge, because the bridge is made of money. You need a ton, a ton of it. And you need extraordinary luck and you need to make excellent decisions in order to to keep yourself in the at the top of the table and stay there and not be you know past eighth place and tenth place and whatever and not in the Champions League or not in a European competition, you need to do things correctly. <laughs> in a time where they need to be doing that, they've signed Wayne Rooney, which as we've <laughs> talked about is an aging star, an aging guy that really, to my knowledge, isn't gonna isn't gonna upgrade many positions at Everton. Although they're not they're not blessed with a with a, with a depth of quality right now, I, I still think it's not the best signing. So the only reason that I think Everton can really justify signing someone like Wayne Rooney is because of specifically what I talked about before, which is the marketing purposes. If you can get those, because Rooney is still popular. He still will sell shirts. He He's in the twilight of his career. It's him coming home. So there is a little bit of a, a story there. And that's really the only way that I can justify them... Bringing someone like him to the club because otherwise I just don't get it. But I mean, I'm curious to think as to whether you have any opinions to the, to the contrary.
1: It's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, I mean, I think the obvious thing, and and Coleman, um, I didn't get to watch the whole interview because I was busy at work. But I think he talked about Rooney's experience being one of the reasons he brought him back. And I I don't take that as a as a just a, you know an excuse for all the marketing things. I genuinely believe that. Coleman understands that one of the places that his team fell apart last year was experience and was, you know, finishing games out. You know, on days that Everton were at their attacking best, they were untouchable. But there were days where they lost points in games they should have totally won and, you know, lost a bunch of points that way. So someone like Wayne Rooney does come in and he does, he's won everything in the game. I think that sort of thing, I know you don't really appreciate the, Uh, some of the uh, the, maybe the psychological side you you know what
0: Kristen Kristen and I had a conversation about this recently because he wrote something for Umax that talking about the experience and the leadership is something that he felt tottenham desperately need from Mm -hmm. from this window and he actually made a good point and he brought up a specific example to me was that he was watching an mls game and and there was an older player and a veteran player playing sort of in the in the central midfield role and the younger player it was very late in the game they were in a you know they were ahead i believe by one goal but he had just gotten a yellow card and he was you know looking rather seeing red almost Um, and he was very close to getting a a second yellow and the, the older player, just the veteran player gotten the younger players, you know, he he came up next to him and he said, just, just relax. And he, and he just Mm -hmm. calmed him down a little bit. And he could see from that point for the remaining 15 minutes of the game that he, Visibly changed his game because right. of the way that the the senior player reacted. So I think in those circumstances, though, like you said, I'm not an adv- I'm not a big advocate of the mental side of the game or, or these intangibles that people talk about a team needing. But I think in those situations, there certainly are there's discernible value to it. So you know.
1: yeah, and I I mean I'm not. I think I fall somewhere in the middle. I think I uh, I appreciate the mental side of it a little more than you do. But I'm not one that thinks that everything is. You know, I think football is a mixture of things, and the mental side is one of them. So Rooney gives them that, but on the playing side of it, this is my hypothesis. I think Wayne Rooney has a much better year next year than we think he will. And the reason for that is one of the reasons for Wayne Rooney's decline, um, apart from the hair plugs, uh, is definitely the, the – the, he. again, it comes back to psychological, I guess. But he, when you look at the interviews he used to do, when you look at the things he used to say – it was almost like Wayne Rooney became gentrified. I don't know if that's a weird way to say that, but Wayne Rooney became this this senior citizen of Manchester United and he lost the fire that we associated with Wayne Rooney. Going back to Everton maybe will just be that he he, he won't need to ha- he won't have to represent this mighty brand that is Manchester United mm-hmm. and he can just go out and play football, enjoy football because Of of all the criticisms we have for Wayne Rooney, and Lord knows I've criticized him a lot in the last four years, but there is, underneath it all, is genuinely a guy that loves football. And I think being back at Everton, being away from the juggernaut that's Manchester United will allow him to go back to just enjoying football without that much pressure. And I think he'll score 10 to 15 goals next season. And it'll be his best season in a while uh, in terms of on-pitch performance.
0: I mean, I don't think that's the that's the most outlandish thing to suggest, and I think you put it very well. Um, but speaking on other things, I think we've spent more than enough time on Wayne Rooney is, like I said, like I talked about, the the transfer plan or the plan that Everton need to enact is an interesting one considering the, the route that they've gone down. I think they've actually made some decent signings yeah. combined with some weird signings. So Michael Keane, I get the idea. I think he's yep, yep. a really, really good center back, and I think he fits exactly what they need because the modern Premier League is, is adapting into a league where you probably have an advantage if you're willing and can play out the back extremely well. And although Dave does not rate Michael Keane's passing, he is a very good passer. It was simply those Burnley, Burnley you know, the, the being in a Burnley system didn't accentuate those qualities or, you know, I think it kind of skewed his numbers. Jordan Pickford's an interesting one. I haven't seen much of him, to be honest. I think there is a case to be made that sometimes people overhype keepers on bad teams because although they, they look have to like they're save make, a
1: shit ton of shots, they have to.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have to save a ton, and sometimes like it always bothers me when someone Paul Pogba does this a lot. He takes a shot from like thirty five yards out, and it's on target, and so it's like sailing almost sailing in, and you know the keeper makes a good save, and he, and he goes out, and everyone's like, ooh and there's almost like this like palpable feeling that it was close but it never was i mean if you if you've ever practiced with a professional goalkeeper which i'm fortunate enough to have done you know they're making those saves all day because shots that you take from 35 yards out unless they're deflected you're seeing that the entire way and so sometimes with these these worst teams like Sunderland, you know, these guys are taking shots in front of a ton of people, but not necessarily obstructing the view. So they're seeing this and, you know, whatever. But I think Pickford's a, a decent pickup considering if he does well, they can sell him on for a lot and, of money uh, and, and considering Everton, you know, probably would, would sell their assets, but
1: you got and, and to add to your point uh, on the keeper thing, I was talking, I was explaining this to a bunch of people here who covered the NASL. I was like, You can take a keeper from the NASL, put him next to David De Gea, and if you do a highlights reel, then probably save. They'll make exactly the same saves. Yeah, the highlight reels of these keepers are all exactly the same saves. They're all diving. They're all reaching balls that we you and I couldn't reach. But the difference between the David De Gea and the NASL goalkeeper is David De Gea is doing that, you know, once or twice a game, and he's doing it every game. Yeah, whereas the fact of the matter is these guys who are in the nasl are able to do that once a season or twice a season or in a few low pressure situations so the difference between goalkeepers isn't their ability it is their consistency and it is the other stuff it is definitely not their ability to reach a ball at one end of the goal or the other because truthfully you can all the goalkeepers all the all professional goalkeepers in the world can do all that on their day
0: oh yeah and I think it's funny that you mentioned David De Gea in the sense that he's the you, best goalkeeper in the world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Um, no, yeah, but definitely. if you if you put a goalkeeper in a certain system, you know, it's goalkeeper analysis is so skewed because the numbers are rarely ever. I mean, numbers. I was looking. At, I was thinking about it today because I was looking at a few things, uh, raw numbers, and I was like, this doesn't tell me anything at all, because. It just doesn't. Tactical mm-hmm. systems are so different that you can have one player that is completing 80% of his passes, and that's fine, right. and then you can have another player who's completing 96% of his passes, and that doesn't mean anything, and in right. the same way as goalkeepers. I mean, like you said, maybe David De Gea goes four games without needing to make more than five saves, but maybe right. Claudio Bravo makes 16 saves in two games. You know, that never happened. But right. you get the point. Yeah, so exactly. So it's 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 weird. But anyways, we continue. Davy Klaassen. I'm not going to speak on him because I've, I I really haven't seen him. But I I think it's
1: a weird one. But the, the one I wait, really wait wait wanted... Hang on, hang on, I got... hang on. You can't skip Davy Klaassen. <laughs>
0: what? Why can't I skip Davy Klaassen? All right,
1: Davy Klaassen is the modern coming of the greatest attacking midfielder I've oh, ever played. Man. Again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know no, you I, haven't you know, seen
1: so, any of Davy Klaassen. So. I have. To be fair, I have. I you have? have okay. I watched a bit of Ajax last year. Okay. And yeah, I felt that Davy Klaassen... So when Davy Klaassen started, if I remember correctly, people were comparing him to uh, to Manchester United legend Wesley Schneider. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the truth <laughs> of the matter is that both of them are very different players. Mm-hmm. To me, Klaassen is more of a support striker than he is an attacking midfielder, right? So right. he's to me, he's more... I don't know. He's more uh, Thomas Muller than he is freaking Wesley Schneider. So I don't see how he fits in that system. I don't see – is he going to play – especially with Wayne Rooney there. How is Koeman going to fit Wayne Rooney, Mar- uh, Marcus, Jesus Christ, Ross Barkley, Bar- Davy Klaassen, all these attacking players in the same system? Well, that being it's said –
0: with that being said, if I mean, like I said, I haven't seen much of Davy Klaassen, yeah. but if you're saying he's more of a second striker, then yes. considering the fact that Kuman has publicly said that he has no faith in Ross Barkley and they're strongly considering selling him, him, then I don't decide literally, unless they go for Sigurdsson, which is someone that they've been linked for strongly,
1: fifty million,
0: Oof. which is a steep price for a good player, but not yeah. an exceptional player. This team is extremely unbalanced, and that kind of brings us yes. to their next signing, which is Gerard De la Lappeo, who I think they they this club has a emotional attachment to Gerard De la Feuille because right. of the because of what he was able to do in the 2013-14 season. He was fantastic for them on loan from Barcelona. He went back. He wasn't able to do anything. I believe he went to a, a uh, he went to a different club, and then he went back to Everton. Oh, and Then right. he went to Milan more recently and he did okay and the thing that strikes me about gerard de is that he could be a really exceptional player like not world class or anything like that but he could be a very very good player the trouble with him is that every time he loses the ball and this is like i said i don't talk too much about the intangibles or things outside of tactics with a great deal of you know with a with a great importance put on them but It happens so much that every time he loses the ball since he tries or attempts so many take-ons, he gets frustrated when they fail. And so with that, he's standing there pouting or hitting the ground or cursing the air or whatever he does for so long that he's defensively, he's a huge liability. And offensively, he's almost a liability as well. So if Koeman can get the best out of him and work that out of his game or whatever coach can, then by all means, I think it's a fantastic signing actually. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's been to Barcelona, he's been to Everton twice, he's been to Milan, and I believe another team was Sevilla. Sevilla, Sevilla, which he barely played. I think. Yeah. If none of those coaches were able to work that out of him, then I have to believe that he that's going to be a part of his game for the foreseeable future. And in that, but case, to be fair, I, I, what
1: the Zen only thing I'll say in Delphio's defense, I, I think it's the same thing we were talking about earlier. You know, he's in, on the highlights reel. Delphio looks like. Messy, like the dude can do amazing things with the ball. But mm-hmm. you're absolutely right, the inconsistency. But we have to remember that he is still super young. Well, relatively young. He's still 22 or 23, right? I might, I might be exaggerating I mean, I that, believe but I believe he's 24. But I'll... okay, yeah. He, either way, he's definitely below he's younger than 25. And I think he is a player that would, you know. He, I feel like Everton should retain him. I think he, he's a game changer. I think he's a good squad player. And I think if if Koeman can continue to experiment with him, can try to get that, I don't know, that uh, that ability uh, back or, or, or that level of ability back, maybe... Uh, w- hang on. I just pulled up his uh, Wikipedia page. So, yeah, he is 23. Mm-hmm. It says he's uh, back at Barcelona. They activated the buyback clause. Is, is that correct?
0: Might. Well, I checked transfer market today, and I think he. Oh, he yeah, he actually. Sorry, he is he is he's back in Barcelona, Barcelona, so they've activated that. But so he is oh, not an Everton player right now. I thought they bought him. Sorry, folks. I was
1: under the impression too. So you and I both stand correct. Both fools right now. on the on the opposite. Uh, You're a bigger fool, line. though. So go ahead.
0: <laughs> Thank. <you. laughs> um. So with that, I think that's the uh, the end of the Everton section, and uh, and like I said we'll leave it at this. I think Everton are trying to bridge the gap into sort of the top four, top six permanently, and they're doing it in the wrong way. But one team that I think is doing it in the right way is Tottenham Hotspur. And this is a team that I think, without a doubt, everyone has been impressed with over the past few seasons. The key part of that and the key figure within that ability to impress, that moving up the up the ladder staying there consistently is Mauricio Pochettino and with that I was thinking about this today I think if Pochettino can pull this off and what I mean by this is if he can keep Tottenham within this top four conversation for the foreseeable for the next few years then he will be the most influential figure in Tottenham's history for a long time and I think Tottenham are making concrete moves to cement themselves upon that because like I said though it may seem like something that is trivial at the beginning though you know not not entirely them building a stadium a massive stadium upgrading upon themselves uh, one that fits more people and is newer and shows a certain degree of financial stability and and money incoming that is that is a huge sign of we're here to stay and we're at the top because rarely do do those clubs like I like I mentioned about Real Madrid rarely do those clubs you know with massive stadiums and and massive players and massive crowds ever really subside once they've been at a certain level for a long time and so with that said I think Tottenham are in an extremely difficult position because we see one that's very similar to Arsenal of of a few years ago, which is this is the time where they need to capitalize and stay in this area and maybe win win trophies and and really push for the league, if not win it. And yet there's this huge monetary black hole, which is the stadium. And they have someone at the helm who has led them extremely well, but is seen as someone that's too frugal with the money. And in a time where most things in the Premier League are solved with new signings, I think Tottenham are putting a huge amount of faith in Murcio Pochettino, and while he's led them well with the majority of their signings, there are a few signs, uh, you know, a, a few worrying signs within that, and and I'll liken the situation to one with Klopp, which is that. Lawrence McKenna and I were talking about the relationship, no. <laughs> the relationship of of uh, Mamadou Sakho and 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 Jurgen Klopp in the sense that he's a player that I think would have fit the center back role at Liverpool extremely well. But for and he whatever, did. yeah, and he did for a time. But for whatever reason, and these are off the field reasons, he wasn't able to, and the club has to do away with him. And then now they're looking at spending anywhere between thirty and eighty million for for a center back that can fill that role. That's an $80 million disagreement. And although there are different factors and there's a lot we're assuming here, there are signs of that, very slight signs of that with Mauricio Pochettino in the sense that they have an excellent center back in Kevin Vimmer that doesn't seem to be agreeing with him off the pitch, and so they might do away with him. And and given the, you know, the need for, for center back depth for, for all these things that they want to do, we don't want to see that from Murcio Pochettino, especially considering the transfer policy that they're enacting, which is they can't spend the 60 to 70 to 80 million on attacking or finished products that they need for their team. And so they're taking gambles on the likes of a Musa Sissoko or these unfinished products or full of potential products that need to be directed and honed by their their very you know their very well uh, well coordinated coach. The difficulty comes when some of those signings don't come off, and the club doesn't have the monetary ability or is not willing to rectify that with the transfer market. So, I don't. I, I think this is this is do or die for Tottenham. But I'd, I'd love to hear what you think on 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 the Tottenham situation at the same time.
1: Is it do or die? I think it's do or die for for someone like you who worships Pochettino and for good reason. I think it's do or die for people like me who. Love watching what he's done with basically one tenth of the resources Manchester United have, um, and and a brilliant but frugal uh, director in in uh, um, what's his face Daniel Levy. Um, Daniel Levy, thank you. Um, I don't know if it's do or die. I, I'm not sure. In I don't terms think it's to be Tottenham. clear. I
0: don't think it's do or die for Pochettino. I think it's do or die for Tottenham. Because like you said, the resources that they're using are significantly less. And, and we're talking specifically about the thing that I think people really undervalue as an influencing factor for players, which is wage. Their wage bill is significantly lower than right. anyone else in the top six. And keeping the players around, like right. maybe you don't worry about someone like Harry Kane or Toby Aldeweireld or those guys that maybe seemed a little bit more attached to the club. But those central figures, those game changers like yep. Dele Alley
1: you have to worry about that, right? You do, but then is that any different from any big club? Look at Man United, right? I mean, you. we have talked about players wanting to leave Man United. Look at Liverpool. Players want to leave Liverpool. This is a, a factor of the money in England that players are unhappy for a variety of reasons, and I think we might be holding Tottenham to a different level because of our expectations of the club. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Tottenham are overachieving, and they are uh, from a variety of metrics. And I think as long as they're in top four, I don't think it's do or die. I think you can still convince... Someone like Harry Kane, that, that he has a future in the club. You can give him a good contract that's above everybody else. Keep him happy. He's going to leave at some point. That's just a fact. Uh, if he, if he continues at the rate he's playing, he's going to leave at some point. And even if, if even if Tottenham won the Premier League, I think Harry Kane would leave at some point. That's my opinion. Tottenham just don't have the the I don't know the romance that a Man United or a Real Madrid or Barcelona, definitely not man City because they're a shit club. But some of these other clubs have. I just don't think Tottenham have that level of romanticism. So I think I think at the end of the day, Tottenham are doing a fantastic job. and your your point about Wimmer and the comparison to soccer was an interesting one because while you were talking, I was wondering if we' if we are analyzing it the same uh, the wrong way because maybe from the perspective of Pochettino, Losing a Wimmer, mm. while it sucks on the pitch, and this is the same reason Sako did it with Klopp, while it mm. sucks on, might suck on the pitch in the short term, in the long term, it is the reason why Pochettino is succeeding. It is the reason why someone like Klopp succeeded at Dortmund is because you only want the players that, that agree with your vision and will go to bat for you. So if, if Sacco is going to be a constant issue, if he's going to show up late for training, if he's going to miss training while they're in the U.S., even though he is the best center back at Liverpool same with Wimmer he's a fantastic player but for from Pochettino's perspective the 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 cost benefit ratio for the long-term success the health of the dressing room and the control that Pochettino has over the club uh, someone like Wimmer is is expendable
0: I think that's a valid point but at the same time like I said I think it's easier for a Manchester City or a Manchester United or whoever.
1: Don't put your shit club in the same conversation as mine. But go ahead. <laughs> we
0: can put we can put those two <laughs> clubs in the same level in terms of money, um, because that that's the reality of the situation. They can say fuck yeah. that with 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 their we'll signings because they can go out and buy. They they spent they broke. I think the center back transfer record for Aliakim Mangala, who turned out to be right. uh, Who turned uh, out garbage. to be terrible, and they said. Okay, fuck that. We'll By John
1: Stones. By John Stones and Nicolas Otamendi. That's <laughs> but fine. But here, here's the question. I don't know the answer and you would know the answer way better than I would. Right. Is it possible that Tottenham sees someone in the academy that he says, all right, we'll say goodbye to Wimmer and we'll bring out the next defender that, that might be able to take his place? We'll make do with the players we have. We have some serious uh, uh, ability in we and these central defenders are already at the club. Perhaps we can make do without Wimmer and and uh, bring someone else out from the academy. Maybe that's his answer.
0: I think perhaps it is, but at the same time, you you there's there's so much, so much of this is risk, right? Yes, and so true. when you're a club in the in the, when you're a club in the position of a Manchester City, a Bayern Munich, or not that I'm saying they're at the same level, but you get know what I mean. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> with with that, you can play with risk a little bit more. Right. You can play with your money. When you're on this teetering edge between the next 15 years being some of the most successful and a life-changing or a, or a or a you know cast-changing time for your club, yeah. you have to make the best of those decisions. It's the same thing I said about about Everton, which is this is not a time where the club can afford to have a transfer or five transfers go poorly. And maybe that's not the case, but that's what hangs in the balance here and that's what's so important about this time in football is that it will decide who's relevant in the next 20 years because of that because that's how serious the money is mm-hmm. that's how serious all these things are and i think i think Pochettino is perfectly capable of doing that but and I, and i'm not suggesting that it's as big as a problem as it is with Klopp because i think it's a bigger problem there but I just, I, I would, I want to see Tottenham succeed. I think they've done everything right. And the only reason, and I'll go back to your point where you said that we're holding them to a different standard because they're Tottenham and by all accounts, they've been overachieving for such a long time by a variety of metrics. I think the reason that I hold them to a different standard is because of that, but also because they, I lost my train of thought.
1: <laughs> the reason you hold them to a higher standard
0: the reason i hold oh, right sorry the reason i hold them to a higher standard is because the money is so much different in ter- not not because of the how much they can spend and, and what i said before but because manchester city offering harry kane 200k a week is such a step up from tottenham there are so many clubs that in terms of monetary wage value are such Ooh. a step up from tottenham because they're spending so little and that's really for me i, I think i'm I value wage structure so high. I think it's for all the talk of you know Alexis is unhappy because of the weather or his dogs or whatever <laughs> so much of it goes into how am I going to pay for all the stuff that I want to pay for? How am I going to keep up the life that I want to keep up for? That's why you see so many players going to Turkey because Bursaspor and Galatasaray and, and all these other clubs are willing to pay these exorbitant wages because they have the ability all to. Right. And those—that's the next club who's offering the, them the a similar or same amount of money. And there are clubs in the Premier League that are of that are achieving or looking to achieve similar things. That their wage is the wage that they'd be able to offer the players that Tottenham have is such a massive step up from from where Tottenham is right now. And that's the danger. And that's why I hold them to to a different
1: standard. That's a good point, and I'll say this uh, it, it, kind of as an. In... Additive notion to your point, it's not exactly directly related, but I think it's worth considering. There was a report yesterday on uh, on ESPN FC uh, based on a study that I, I haven't read yet. But the, the, basically the summary was some Premier League clubs, and I'm sure Man United and Man City and the big ones are included on this, because although they weren't named, are losing an average of €860,000 a day. Think about that. A day—that's how much money they are hemorrhaging right now. And clubs like Tottenham and Arsenal—I don't know if they're not on the list. I don't know what the names are, but I, I'm just wondering if clubs like Tottenham have are cognizant of what is happening, and they have realized that the bubble is eventually going to burst. There's no doubt; it's just a matter of when. And they're looking at some of this data that they probably have, you know, in terms of how much. The clubs are losing and they're wondering if having some financial prudence at this point is the best way to go for a couple of years see how things play out and then spend money like they did in that season when they took the Gareth Bale money and invested it in like god knows how many players so again this is this is just me throwing a hypothesis out there i'm wondering if clubs like Tottenham are are being careful because they know of the madness that is going on around them and they're expecting some sort of financial collapse in the Premier League.
0: That's quite possible. But in the, for the sake of time, I think we have to, to move on to our, to our next team, which we talked a little bit about in, in the Tottenham section, and that's Liverpool. And I think being, and I've had this this conversation a lot with, with Lawrence, is Ooh. even <laughs> even this, I, I think it's being extremely reductionist, I think it's still a valid point. With the signings of Salah and maybe one or two other decent midfielders, any more shortcomings in terms of the perceived success from Liverpool fans will start to rightly be blamed on Klopp. And this is something that that Lawrence said about a year ago, which is he kind of expects at some point for the, the the goodwill to run out the goodwill to come out to to run out the knives to come out really mm-hmm. and i think that should have started happening a little bit earlier and i'm interested to hear what you think about what i'm about to say which is that i think for all the applause of liverpool getting back to where people feel they should be the fact that they struggled so hard with the ease of the schedule that they had towards the end of the season you know the likes of relegation sides or crystal palace who are no excellent team by any stretch of the imagination. But the way that they struggled really in the second half of the season for me is so much down, not to the lack of fitness, not to the squad size, not to whatever. It's largely down to the to Klopp's inability to adapt. And like I said at the beginning, every manager has shortcomings. And it's whatever manager can either circumvent or solve those shortcomings is who's really successful in the long term. And I think this mm-hmm. is really – his time at Liverpool is so defining for him, but I I, I want to hear what what you think in terms of, do you think that's an adequate assessment as to, I think it was not an embarrassment, but I I just I blame so much of what happened last year to Liverpool into Klopp's inability to to, to get something more out of his players, not you know Mamadou or not Mamadou Sakou, uh Sadio Mane not being fit or or not. Or Coutinho having a minor ankle injury, leaving him out of the game or whatever. It's just he, he could have done so much more to get to get more out of those players, and he he simply wasn't able
1: to. But the thing is that he was for for start. If you remember the start of the season, Liverpool for a while were playing really really well. Didn't you think so? I thought they were playing really no, well. Playing, I thought they he, were playing
0: excellent. They they yeah. they were.
1: And I think the 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 players you mentioned in Sadio Mane and Coutinho, them getting injured and or leaving for uh, African Cup of Nations duty um, significantly impacted Liverpool. So I think there is something to be said that Klopp is very um, set in his ways, which is true of most managers, not all, but most managers. And I don't think he's going to change that. I think he's going to sign the players that he thinks Oh, by the way, I just looked and they signed Dominic Solanke from Chelsea in the last couple of hours. So another highly overrated garbage player they, at they, Liverpool. They, right? they, did, they did that a while ago, I think. I thought they signed Salah a while ago. I didn't realize they signed Solanke No, a while Solanke ago. was b- before Salah. Oh, clearly shows how much I pay attention these <laughs> days. But, <laughs> uh, um, you know, my, my complaint with Liverpool, even as a Man United supporter, it's kind of depressing to see where they are now. You know, I mean, 10 years ago, they were signing Fernando Torres, the most sought-after forward at that time from Atletico Atletico Torres. Atletico Madrid, they signed Luis Suarez. I mean, they signed some... Okay, I know it's a joke now, but they signed Andy Carroll at a time when he was highly sought-after from Newcastle United, right? Right. They were signing the players that were sought-after. They were signing players like a big club. And you see the players they've signed in the last... Three years, I'd say, and there's a precipitous decline in the quality of player they're signing consistently on a consistent basis, and I it leaves me wondering about how this this once great club has reached where it is. One one explanation is that Klopp wants a particular kind of player. He wants a player that he can mold, and you're not going to be able to mold a Cristiano Ronaldo. Not that Ronaldo was signed for Liverpool. But I'm just using him as an example. You won't be able to mold, but you'll be able to mold Dominic Solanke. You'll be able to mold um, um, Salah. You'll be able to mold players that give you a lot of work rate. So maybe that's the argument. But I wonder if if we are just seeing just a huge decline in Liverpool as a club as a whole, which is really depressing because they were so close to to winning a Premier League three years ago. And they, they are a huge club and they are a historic club. So, I don't know what happens with Klopp, but to come back, that was a long-winded answer. To come back to your original question, yes, of course, if, if Liverpool continue to to not win trophies and to not succeed uh, throughout the season and, and to have these poor performances in Cups, absolutely the buck stops at, at, uh, um, at Klopp. And I say that as a big fan of Klopp. So who knows? Who knows how things go from here?
0: I know you're a big fan of Klopp. But I think and this is kind of what I was getting on to before, I, I think this is his time at Liverpool will be seen when we look at when we look back at his career as, as a really defining time for what yeah. he does in the football game yeah. because with no disrespect to Dortmund because they are a big club and I think in relative terms they're probably right now of a similar status to to that of Liverpool if not higher considering their consistent Performers in the Champions League and and everything that they've been able to do and and all the players that they've been able to sign and and they will undoubtedly produce with with uh, Dembele and and Emery Moore and and uh, Rafael Guerrero. But I, I think with the dominance of English based media within the football realm, I think people will really look back on his time in the English
1: English speaking football realm.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think people will really look back back at, at what he did with Liverpool as some of the most defining things in his entire career. And I just, I don't know if he'll be able to achieve everything that people expect of him, especially Liverpool fans mm. with his managerial tool belt, as I'll put it, because for everything that I love about Klopp and I, everything that I think people love about Klopp, we're starting to see that change a little bit. You know, the, the funny answers and the lovability from the press, you know, ev- eventually the press turns on everyone. And yep. you start that way and it just continues. Or you start w- with them being friendly and then after a certain amount of time, failure will reach you. And I think, I I just, I, I don't know if, I don't know if Klopp's going to live up to everything that Liverpool fans want him to be. But I, I I I'm curious to hear what what you think he'll be able to do within within his time
1: at Liverpool. I remember I was on your pod and you had asked me if I if you I think Lawrence was on that pod too and you asked if I thought uh, Klopp was close to winning the premier closer to winning the Premier League than than Mourinho was and I said yes at that time. I don't know if that's true anymore, and that's mostly because of the disparity in what. United have spent versus Klopp uh, versus what Liverpool have spent. I I don't think Klopp will, will have the level of success that Liverpool supporters want him to. But at the same time, Liverpool supporters have to temper and realize the fact that he is, whether it's by his own, well, let me put it this way, it's possible that Liverpool that Klopp is not signing players because Ian Eyre is basically preventing Liverpool from investing heavily in players. All these rumors about Van Dyke at seventy million—they're all rumors. We we don't know the truth about how much Liverpool are actually bidding for these players, right? Mm-hmm. They famously have underbid players before, so um, that's it's possible that Liverpool are just stuck in the transfer market because they don't want to spend money. If that's the case, Liverpool supporters need to realize that Klopp is all Klopp is probably one of their best bets. He's going to develop young players. He's going to sign players on the relative cheap and and be able to develop them. On the other hand, if Klopp himself is deciding that he doesn't want to sign big players, then they're going to continue to be in the Champions League conversation and finish third, fourth. And to be honest, at least based on everyone I see in Liverpool, uh, in the Indianapolis area who supports Liverpool, they're all super happy. As long as they finish above United, they don't really care what happens beyond that. I mean, United won trophies last year. But Liverpool supporters feel like they had a successful season because they finished above United. So who knows, maybe Liverpool supporters have started to uh, understand, I hate to use this phrase, but understand their place in the football pyramid as well.
0: Hmm. Well, that's interesting. We're going to have, we're going to talk Arsenal with a, with an Arsenal expert later on in the week. So we'll leave that for later. But one of the last clubs is, is the current reigning champions, Chelsea. Now, It is almost a sexual experience for me watching Chelsea fans suffer. So Morgan Green's overconfidence in their ability to sign Romelu Lukaku and then him subsequently signing for Manchester United was sem magnifique for me. So I'll just start it off with that. One thing I do want to illuminate is that I am, as a Manchester City fan, pretty angry about the fact that they were able to come in and sign Willy Caballero. Not because I think he's an excellent goalkeeper because I don't think he is. But I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that Chelsea really struggled with from a tactical perspective last season was their inability to build the play out of the back, because that's really the, the plague of a few clubs. And it's not the plague of, of Manchester City, but we have our own issues with our goalkeepers, as, as, been, has, as has been well documented. Um, but really the plight of, of, a, of a Pochettino side, or, or a, specifically a Conte side, now that we're talking about it, is the fact that Thibaut Corta is not a not a goal, not a a goalkeeper that excels with the ball at his feet. And so them snagging Billy Caballero, who's pretty much almost as good as Claudio Bravo with the ball at his feet, with his distribution, with his ability to play the correct passes in those situations, which is really what that comes down to. It's not really your ability to pass, but sort of your ability to make the right decision in those situations, is, is really a steal. And... In certain games, with him playing, I think high-pressing them will now become a danger as opposed to a viable option to, to catch them out. But the main thing that I wanted to talk about, which a lot of people seem to have be having discussions on Twitter about, is their most recent signing, which is Antonio Rudiger, the, the center back from Roma. Which think, Right back, no? Is, is he a center back or right back? No, he's a center back. I mean, he okay. can play right back and he can play sort of fullback role he has for Germany and he has for Roma gotcha. um, but, but he is more of a, a center back
1: by trade okay yes. so is he a replacement then for uh, I don't know enough about him I didn't watch Roma much so is he you think he's a replacement for Terry or do you think he's a actual starter for Chelsea I
0: think I, I think there are weaknesses within that three and the biggest weakness being Gary Cahill um because actually is exceptional David Luiz is pretty darn good within that system, that there's a big asterisk there, within yeah, that system. Yeah, yeah. I know what you but mean. I certainly wouldn't have pegged Antonio Rüdiger to be the first choice for Chelsea, especially, you know, $34 million nowadays isn't the biggest transfer, but for a club like Chelsea that is actually built on a smaller club's model, they're not a Manchester United, they're not a, um, you know, a, they don't have the money of a Manchester City necessarily anymore, considering how long that they've been in the game and, and all these things and how much they're looking for a return on things. I, I just don't understand because you know one thing that Chelsea have been famous for for the past couple of years is this lone army. And so you have two options that are in my eyes probably better, if not one of them is definitely better than Antonio Rudiger and yet they've went out and spent the money. So Nathan Aké is someone that they've that they brought back in January. He I guess he didn't fit the system and they've sold him back to Bournemouth, so he's out of the conversation. But one person that I really don't understand why they have consistently given up hope on, whether it be Mourinho, whether it be the interim manager, whether it be Conte, is Andreas Christensen, which is a player that Chelsea have had on loan for a number of years now at, at Borussia Mönchengladbach. And yet, in my eyes, he's considerably better than Antonio Rudiger, and yet they continue to sign people in the same position and send him out on loan. Why is that?
1: Why? <laughs> Shit! You've asked the fucking million-dollar question <laughs> that everyone worry, asks about. I mean, you buy these players, and you—it's uh, almost like they—they only buy young players to sell them off as a way to generate money. And to be fair, they do a good job of it. They've somehow they sell better than any other club in England, well, except for Tottenham. I can't help but wonder if that's really the reason. I mean, I don't—I really don't think they—they they believe that these players will make it at Chelsea because. Who was the last youth player to make it at Chelsea? I don't I don't remember. I think the closest was maybe Josh McEachran And other than that, it's been pretty much all these players have been at loan at Vitesse, or as you said, in Gladbach or Southampton or
0: Let me ask you a better else.
1: question then. Okay.
0: How much how much of a disadvantage do you think it is for Chelsea? And like I said, considering the maybe closing or tightening of the belt? Uh, in terms of their finances, it is for Chelsea to go out and spend 34 million on Antonio Rüger when they have not one but two options that could fit the same, if not better. And we're not con- we're not considering if it's worse, but the same, if not better, for for the club. How how big of how big of a disadvantage do you think that is?
1: I mean, the problem is that that what's his face uh, Antonio Conte doesn't think that it's. As good or maybe a bit better. That's I think that's the key for whatever reason. And I haven't watched Christensen. I can't comment on his ability that much. Uh, but that's the key. And that's that. At the end of the day, every manager at Chelsea is desperate for immediate success, as opposed to being able to allow a few mistakes here and there. And for whatever reason, uh, Conte feels that Rudiger is less likely. Is a more finished product than Christensen, and really, that's that's just the short of it. I think.
0: Hmm. Fair enough. Now we're going to be moving on to the last club, and I'll let you take the reins because nobody ever gets to ask me questions about Manchester. Oh
1: God, City. I do, so, you're going to make me talk about Manchester City. Fine, I'll do <laughs> listen, it. Listen, I, I put Mancha-
0: <laughs> you. You can, folks. I'll send out a, a screenshot. The Google Doc has Manchester United first, and it has Manchester City last. So I did you that favor, Napoon. You have to ask me questions about Manchester City. You have to ask me questions about more recently the selling of Kalechi Inacho.
1: Yeah. I I, that's what that was so I wrote a couple of questions down. Inacho was the first one I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. Tell me you know, we were talking about Chelsea. We're talking about how they haven't really brought through a player and some of the same things with City. Three years ago they set up that academy and we were all hoping for for a uh, you know a barrage of players to come through, of course, Ianacho is not like City born or whatever, but mm-hmm. he's the closest that almost made it through, and now he's gone. So, your your thoughts on that? Well, oh, think- and by the way, I will say that you were the first one to say that Iannaccio is not all that he's made out to be. So, so thank you. Wow, yeah.
0: I could not have led myself better into that question. I really <laughs> do appreciate you saying that. Um, um, <laughs> But I think part of part of my answer also comes within your question, which is that you said it exactly three years ago. it's not not a very long time or even four or five years ago. that's not a very long time yep, for, a for a whole youth cycle academy of players, yeah. to mm-hmm. be you know p- to be producing top talent, especially with the amount of players that Manchester City are buying it like the fifteen sixteen year old range, you know NSU now and some of these other players, you know they're not city born and bred so the ideas of of a holistic academy and Pep Guardiola coming in and you know Pep Guardiola just got here but then people have this idea that we need to be pumping out products that are reflecting everything that he wanted and he's only been there a year doesn't make any sense um yeah. <laughs> but with that being said like you very fairly mentioned I was the first one not the first one but I think I am in a minority of Manchester City fans to say that and Nacho is not all he's made out to be and I think He's achieved uh, a very emotional relationship with our fan base, considering you know how many times he's come into a game late and been able to score. And while I think he's a decent player, the thing that I've always seen from him is a lack of a, 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 an apparent lack of off-ball intelligence. And I think one of the things that has hyped his numbers up so much is the fact that for two or three years now. He's come into games in the 89th minute or the 86th minute in either a game that was meaningless and the opposition had near given up or it didn't matter to them anymore and it was the end of the season or whatever, or we were in a real pinch and the other players retired and they didn't know much of him because... You know, it, it's sort of difficult to organize defensive systems and, and organize defensively at the end of the game when you're already tired and, and there are all these players flying around. And, and he's a decent player and he comes to the rescue in these very specific moments. So he's had the ability to, to only shine pretty much. You know, if we sent him on the 90s, 91st minute when we needed a goal and he didn't come up with it, I don't think anybody's writing a column after the game saying, Ian really let us down. But if he scores, right. then he gets every single plotted out there. And so you see all these. All these people come to his, you know, come to his fervent support, yet really without much, without much data behind it. And I think watching him more this year, watching a little bit more time that he got, and and actually that's one of the most telling things is the, the fact that he didn't really play himself into a role when when we possibly needed him to. With uh, Agüero, you know, Agüero being suspended and us not really having a concrete striker, shows me that. Along with the eye test, me seeing that he's not very intelligent off the ball, he doesn't have very uh, good passing feet. He doesn't. He doesn't know how to do these things not only in a Pep Guardiola system, but I think in a complex attacking system. Shows me that while he may, and I hope he does, exceed exceptionally well in a different system, the place for him right now is not at Manchester City. And
1: but I th- hey, hang on, let's. Play, I have to play devil's advocate here because mm-hmm. I don't know if I agree with everything you're saying. Okay. Because a player like a player like that is is you're right you're not going to get everything you want out of him he's not a complete striker but a player like that has a huge place in a squad and a squad is very very important we cannot always only think about a starting 11 right i mean that is a that is a misconception that one player is better than the other so the, so the second player should be sold off you need more, but you need bodies like Ignacio in the squad. A player that can come on and score a goal is worth his weight in goal, definitely, gold.
0: Definitely, definitely.
1: And man. I and I wonder. We were talking about the stubbornness, and of course, I've been called a, a quote Fraudiola lover for too long. So I have to ask myself and you too. Like, is this the sort of thing that Guardiola is? You know, sorry for the cliche with Guardiola, but is this naivete from Guardiola to? pretend that a player that, who, who isn't a complete striker, who isn't, you know, uh, I don't know, an Enri who can play multiple positions in a Guardiola system, but a player that is single-minded, only scores goals, to not be able to fit him into a squad, is that a failure of Guardiola?
0: I think that's an excellent question, but I I think there's a number of... There's a number of factors that are really at odds with each other with Kelechi. And that is that while he is a good player like you said you're you're talking about a player that in those formative years you know he's 19 or 20 years old now yeah. like Na- like Nathan Aké like a lot of the guys in the Chelsea Lone army in those years in those years of your development into a from a youth player to a senior player you need as much playing time as physically possible and although mm-hmm. you know you may get the odd youth game or you may get the odd full game at the at the senior level as a part of the team if the club really wants to develop you then they need they need you to play senior level games consistently not only because of right. you know the intangibles and the atmosphere and that's even something that guardiola has spoken to which is there's such a big difference for y- these youth players graduating from you know, the under 21s or the under 23 side, jumping from a stadium that has a hundred people in it, you know, 200 people in it to a stadium that's filled with, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people, you know, that that atmospheric change for those players is, is massive. And so we need for us to develop Kelechi, we need him to get as much playing time as possible. And what that comes to odds with is he quite apparently does not fit in the system that the team is centered around right now which is sort of this passing football which you you really need to be a part of and so the club has to make a decision there between investing more more time and money through different avenues in their asset that that they've worked hard to develop in clechy and Accio, or pandering towards the the other asset in Pep Guardiola. And I think Pep Guardiola wins that every time, not only because he's Pep Guardiola, but but because he's the manager. And I think, though it's not the best justification for it, I just think that, I think he'll do well elsewhere, but Manchester City isn't the place for him because of where Manchester City is right now, and we're not going to change the very fabric of the club to suit a youth product that people are emotionally attached. But to. then,
1: isn't isn't that again, isn't that hypocrisy from you to sit to use that as a lens, but not extend that same courtesy to Klopp or the same courtesy to uh, you know Mourinho, for example?
0: Well, in what sense? Because I think...
1: In the sense that, you know, you're basically saying that the reason to summarize what you're saying, Iheanacho is not going to be at at City because he doesn't fit Guardiola's vision. Mm-hmm. So can, can we not use that same argument for any other manager that we've criticized? Definitely.
0: Definitely. I think that's, that's an adequate criticism of Guardiola. But at the same time, the difference between maybe the situation of lesser Conte and more Klopp is that Klopp very much needs a center back in, in Mm -hmm. at at least one that would, would cover up some of the holes that uh, someone like Lavrin or, or Matip or, or, um, or Ragnar Klavan puts in the squad when they play. I like how you say Ragnar. Say it again. Ragnar. And uh,
1: now you sound white as fuck when you say the (laughs) second
0: time. Ragnar. Um, (laughs) Ragnar. Ragnar. Um, (laughs) but right now and though they've spent the money and maybe you're right we could we could have made a better decision from that but right now Manchester City don't really need that position to be filled they don't need to to change it up for him they don't they have they have a Sergio Aguero they have a Gabriel Jesus they have you know a Nolito that can even play in that role even though he's supposedly leaving they have they have other players that can fit that so there's not a huge demand for someone like Inacho and yeah there's a maybe a hypocrisy from me saying that, you know, oh, they should have figured it out in a different situation, but we didn't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think from the beginning, I, I didn't see, even if it wasn't Guardiola, I I think Kelechi demands a very specific team to, for him to thrive and he'll find that at Leicester City, but he's not going to find that at Manchester City.
1: Okay, fair enough. Let's move ahead to uh, another couple of things here at City. The One thing that caught me completely... I mean, I've most I've focused a lot on American soccer, so I haven't followed a lot. But I was surprised to see that Toure is going to be at City again next year. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on Yaya, a player that I really admire? He's done some magnificent things, but uh, strange, given you know the fallout with Guardiola at the start of the season, he didn't play till January or December, I want to say. Um, had an important role to play towards the end of the season, but the continuance with Yaya Toure, your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think first I gotta, I gotta give shout out to my boy. Yaya Because (laughs) on his day, best midfielder in the world, probably one of the best to ever. no, definitely one of the best to ever grace the Premier League. One of the very reasons that I started watching football was Yaya Toure. So he's a very special player in my heart uh, because I think he's magnificent. Some of the things that he's able to do even to this day are, are fantastic. So with that being said, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around Toure. I think he's a very docile person. He's a very nice guy. He's he's one that has a lot of con- consideration for other people and yet he's represented by a the, the personification of an asshole. Um he's a human asshole, which is Dimitri Selick, and he's the one that created the the discrepancy and the the disagreement between him and Guardiola. He's the only thing that separated Yaya and, and the fans and, and the birthday cake was also a doing of, <laughs> of Dimitri Selic. None of these things, if you, cause I've watched a lot of Yaya Tour interviews, although there, they are few and far between. I've, I've watched a lot of what he says and, I think that's a, that's the case with a lot of these players is that they're represented by someone and that's kind of their job is to get them the most amount of money, but they don't represent them from a personal standpoint. They don't represent their opinions. They don't represent their their mannerisms or anything like that. And we have Dimitri Selig who works very hard to get Yaya the best contract possible. But Yaya, I think, loves Manchester City. He loves the Manchester City fans. He's done a great service to the club. He's a Manchester City legend. And for everything that Guardiola has done to advance the club thus far, none of that would have been possible, not only in the past from Yaya Toure to elevating Manchester City to where they are now, but also this season. Ilke Gundogan was injured. That's a huge blow to Guardiola's plans. And without the mobility of someone like Yaya Torre without his passing ability, without his intelligence and without really his commitment, because the last two managers in Roberto Mancini and Manuel Pellegrini were unable to get Yaya to do any defensive work. And Mm. Pep Guardiola was able to coerce that out of him. without that, you know, we, we played for a lot of the the, the winter time sort of November to, to February um, this hybrid sort of three five or two three five system that required him to really be the 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 nucleus of, of the formation splitting the center backs coming through distributing the ball making sure it was in the right place at the right time and, and really only he can do that because he has an exceptional range of passing so I'm Extraordinarily and a stat, extraordinarily happy to to have Yaya be at Manchester City till the end of of his relevant career, and I I hope we don't have to use him as much as we did this season because that was really only out of necessity. But the club owes him, the club and Guardiola owe him a great deal because he's he was he was the linchpin that was able to that was part of what was able to to at least try out a lot of Guardiola's ideas in in the first year without Ilkay Gundogan. So I'm, I'm excited. Okay.
1: That's, that's fair. Um, for the record, I think, yeah, is a magnificent footballer. Okay. Uh, then Danny Alves, Danny Alves, uh, rumored to be signing with, with city. Um, there have been some counter rumors, if that's a word, the last 48 hours that he might be heading to PSG. Uh, how do you see Danny Alves fitting in and, are you hearing that he is going to sign with PSG, or do you think he's city city bound?
0: So first, to to sort of address how he'll fit into Manchester City, I think you know fullbacks is something that Manchester City desperately need. Although at one point, I like brainwashed myself into thinking that no, we don't need fullbacks. We'll just play a three to five with no fullbacks, and, and it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> it's it's weird because we have such a weird as like I think. Premier League viewers is what I would consider you and I to be. We have such a weird perception of Danny Alves' season, at, or final season at Juventus, because of everything that they will they were able to achieve towards the end of the season. The reality is is that when he got there, he was not seen as a as a not maybe not seen as a great signing originally, but right away he didn't really fit in. He wasn't playing super well. Then he got a serious injury so he wasn't able to to play for a, a pretty large amount of time and so people were kind of viewed him as a flop and then Allegri was changing his formation he was changing his system he was you know evolving as the season went on and and really the majority of where Danny Alves saw his you know re-emergence into the four of world football not only with Juventus but within that sort of right flank role was the fact that people often mistake him as a right back this season but he he rarely ever played that they played sort of a three back four back hybrid system where he played more as a right winger that dropped deep when necessary and it's not even a right wing back so to say that he'll fit in purely as a right back is extremely odd because I think he's 34 years old, and to demand that out of someone, and not only that, but for Manchester City to replace a 33- and a 34-year-old right-back with another 34-year-old right-back is a really weird situation, but if it's 5 million, it's 5 million. But I think what Dani Alves brings is an immense understanding as to what a Guardiola fullback is supposed to do. And with that, I'm right... Are you
1: Are you worried that, that Guardiola is falling prey to this, this strange almost nepotism uh, that he's, he's focused on players that he knows will w- work well and he, he's not worried about, you know, uh, like like Sir Alex did. You know, he brought back Skulls out of retirement when he had Pogba on the benches because he knew Skulls would do what he wanted him to. Is, is that feeling there from Guardiola? Is that why he's going for another 34-year-old as opposed to, you know, signing a, a promising right-back or a, a different right-back?
0: No, because I think... And this is with a with a with a large asterisk, and I think if Manchester City sign a set of fullbacks, and the idea is to have you know left back and a right back, and then I think the the best thing that Manchester City will be able to do is both sign Danny Alves and then sign a right back for the future. That that would be the idea. And so what Danny Alves would be able to do from them is that I, I think with your comments or your question about nepotism is that. Yes there there is an element of that where Guardiola knows that Dani Alves will work in his system because he worked so well in it before. Right. But the exactly. the thing the thing about it is is that Dani Alves is an amazing player in a Guardiola system. He worked in such an amazing way and part of what inspired me to write what I'm currently writing about Bernardo Silva and how I think he'll fit into the Manchester City setup is it was inspired by it was Messi's thirtieth thirtieth birthday, so uh, I think a, a video Twitter account released his thirty best goals, and there was one goal I think against Deportivo La Coruña in you know the sort of peak years of the of the Guardiola system, where Dani Alves went from right back, continually linking up with Messi to the right from the from a deep right flank roll all the way through central midfield, passing all the way through between Messi, Xavi, and Iniesta to the number nine spot linking up all the way to a messy assist. Name me another right back that could ever do that. <laughs> Danny Alves is such a special player in the way that he was able to almost revolutionize that role that, especially under Guardiola that I think right. if Manchester city do it correctly, sort of in the way that I outlined, which is to sign Danny Alves and then have another promising young right back or another promising young fullback, learn and understand what to do in that system, linking up with the likes of a David Silva or Kevin De Bruyne or hopefully a, a Bernardo Silva, Will be the, the value of that will be priceless. And I think that's the point.
1: Fair enough. And then finally, are there, are there other players that you hear City being linked with that you would like City to sign?
0: I think the main the main concern from now from here till till the end of the summer is the fullbacks.
1: Basically, what I'm asking is name the player that City need to sign. To name bring, the player that City the, need to sign to bring this whole. Uh, podcast Danny back. Alves when he
0: was 22 years old. Uh, and two of them. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, if I were to, to name a player that I think Manchester City should sign, it would probably be if if I could just pick him out of a hat. I would say Benjamin Mendy would probably be the best one because I think Why? He's the, he because I think he's the left back version of, of exactly what I was talking about. I think he's a he's a fullback that with extreme intelligence is extreme athleticism. That some of the things that he was able to do, charging into those, uh, you know, charging into those forward roles for Monica last season, so much of that really mirrored some of the things that Guardiola did when he was at Barcelona. And so I think with that understanding and then Guardiola furthering that, that understanding and, and using him in a different way, we will see the best of some of, some of the attacking talents that, that Manchester City have. And I think with you know the accentuation of, of, of the qualities of some of those central midfielders, when you have excellent wide players that are able to link up with the likes of you know, a Sané or a Sterling or a Silva or, or a De Bruyne, you, know, you, you have a recipe for not only success, but beautiful football. And so I think with Benjamin Mendy, that's
1: that's possible. Okay. Um, that's all I have for City. They're a garbage club and will always remain in Manchester United's shadow.
0: <laughs> that's actually all we have for the podcast. And I, I hope you enjoyed it, folks. Nipun, I really do appreciate you coming on, although you, you constantly berate my club, my club <laughs> of choice. Um, if the people, you know, I know you, you've you been focusing on on the Sock Takes, which is fantastic. It's a, it's a good website. It's a fantastic uh covering of the, of American soccer and you know you continue to be one of the leaders in the voices of American soccer and I think that's important because I would I wouldn't give the keys to anybody else
1: That's so, very kind of you. Um yeah, you can follow our work at SockTakes.com as uh as Nico mentioned we cover uh soccer for, uh, primarily uh, primarily lower league lower league American soccer uh division 2 um and there's an awesome story right now in the U.S. Open Cup with these clubs that have no business being where they are so there's a lot of cool stuff going on if you're interested in it follow us there you can find me at Nipun Chopra 7 and Nico always a pleasure chatting with you thank you for letting me be letting me back on your awesome pod
0: thank you so much for for giving me the the ability to, to have a pod in the first place and and with that, we close, folks. I, I hope this uh, filled the the gap in your heart with all the absence of football. Um, we'll be back soon with with some other podcasts with some great people. So we'll uh, we'll see you next time.